Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, an oral history podcast about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 loiners over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. My mission here is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, did during humanity's biggest emergency. On working hours, we hear how loiners have, are, and will be coping with our multiple and expanding crises during their day-to-day working hours. Can we turn things around? We'll find out. To tell this story, I need loiners. Loiners like you, dear listener. I need people in Leeds or people from Leeds to come on this podcast and just tell me what they do all day and let me record how this affects us. Thank you for listening. What did you want to be when you grew up? So I think like everybody, I did not have like one thing that I wanted to be the whole time I wanted to grow up. I think the first job I wanted was to be a teacher, probably when I was in nursery, I think when I was yeah, preschooler, I wanted to be a teacher. But then it kind of um, changed and I, I do remember like wanting, I did always kind of like science and learning, so I did want to be like a scientist or an astronaut, you know, research kind of various various kind of topics. Yeah, I liked animals, so I did also wanted to study biology, but it, I didn't have like one set thing that I wanted to be. It just kind of changed, but I think it did always like revolved around learning and kind of learning more about the, around the world, about the world, kind of just learning new things. It sounds like you wanted to sort of get out of where you were into something bigger and sort of explore, is that? Yeah, I think so. So I, I always, um, I think I was always a bit of a nerdy kid. Mm. So I did like kind of school, I liked learning. Mm. Uh, I did like spending time outside as well. And I think I always had this kind of thing. I wanted to kind of do well mm. in what I was doing. So I wanted to do well in school. I wanted to kind of learn things. I wanted to kind of, when I liked something, I, I really got into it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really kind of about getting away from where I was. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Czech Republic or like when I was a child, it was still Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm during you know the socialist times but uh, like my memories of childhood were you know it was kind of reasonably happy mm-hmm. um, we like we didn't have a lot but we didn't like there wasn't like any significant poverty like we always you know everybody kind of there wasn't a lot of inequality so there wasn't like a big difference between some people having a lot and some people not having enough to eat that was never the case you know there was always kind of enough mm. for us to live an okay decent life um, so i think in this kind of sense i didn't really feel like the need to do better mm-hmm. because we were fine it's just because i liked um yeah because i was a nerdy kid and i just liked learning mm. Yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Series 4, Episode 30, and to my guest, Marketa Dolisholova. 
This is another Squadcast interview recorded on the 25th of the 9th, 2023. Marqueta Dolisholova, I'm murdering her name, uh, is an academic researcher who studies migration, work and inequality. She is herself a migrant and worked in minimum wage jobs after moving to the UK before returning to higher education and eventually doing a PhD and moving to Leeds. This is the last episode of this series, and Series 5 will be starting next week. I always need guests, so if you know anyone, or you are anyone, who would like to be on the show, then get in touch. Email workinghourspod at western-studios.com with your availability. You know the score by now. It's been a real slog getting these last few out. It's always a slog. If you'd like to help the project be on a more stable and regular footing, if you'd like to see more consistent output and improve the episode quality, if you'd like to help with the curation of this project, then please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash working hours pod, or just give a one-off donation of any amount via ko-fi.com, that's K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash working hours. It all goes towards this project. Hasn't been any donations for a while now, apart from Thomas's. So thanks for that, Thomas. Speaking of the Patreon, don't think of it as paying for something that's free. You're not doing that. Firstly, it's not free. It costs me a lot of time and energy, as well as a small fortune in expenses. Secondly, you're paying to support the project going forward. You're helping to sustain it. Additionally, you'll have access to a space with other listeners of Working Hours, and you'll be able to give direct feedback and input into the shape of the podcast and the project. Final quick note before we jump back into Marquetta's interview, and it's another thing I always mention, quality. There's a few more coming up already in Season 5 that will have ropey sound, but I'm working on this happening much less often for you. Apologies for the sound on this episode. Right, let's do this, episode 110 of Working Hours with Marqueta Dolisholova. So what is it that you do now then? So now, funnily enough, I do uh, work in academia. Um, I did not go into like STEM, into you know, biological or um, what is it called, um, technical sciences. I ended up in social sciences. Mm-hmm. So through kind of a long not a very straight way, I ended up doing a PhD in social anthropology, mm-hmm. uh, which was on uh, Roma migrants in Leeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking at like, health inequalities and like um, economic inequalities that Roma experience, um, and just how they kind of try to make better life after moving to the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now I work... Um, as a researcher and I continue like researching work and migration and um, inequalities or kind of low paid employments uh, and employment conditions. Yeah, so I did not end up, you know, being an astronaut or researching kind of animals or being a marine biologist, which I think was one of my dreams as well, but um, I did end up in research. So we'll start with social media. So the question around social media, uh, it's again, it's to look at how it affects your work. Um, And I talk about it because more and more people have to do more and more social media work, even if their work isn't social media. Uh, So it's something that more and more of us have to do. 
do you have to do much in terms of social media for your own work? Uh, I'm imagining in terms of maybe if you're looking for funding or things that you want to promote or if you want to promote the publication of a paper or something like that, there may be other things. But how much time do you spend on it and do you think that's a good use of your time? Like, does that get the return on the time invested that you want? If you put something out there, do people sort of click it and come through to where you need them to go? Yeah, so like, first of all, I'm not like a, I'm not as active on social media as some other people, mm-hmm. but there is definitely kind of more use of social media by academics to promote their research, to kind of raise awareness, to network as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess I am more of a passive user, so I do look at social media and um, I have, for example, found like, found learned about interesting projects that are relevant to my work, you know, learned about kind of publications that other people have done, mm-hmm. learned about conferences and other events mm-hmm. that people have done that are relevant to me on social media mm-hmm. more than via like official channels like mailing lists or you know, mm-hmm. information on websites. Uh, so there is definitely use for social media in for this. Um, I do do some kind of active use of social media that if you know if we have a publication myself or my colleagues i do post about it i do run the twitter or x um, account for for the project that i'm working on Mm -hmm. Um, and also i am a convener of the anthropology of labor network Mm -hmm. which is like a network of um, academics who work on labor or are interested in labor issues um, so I moderate the Facebook page on that but I am not the only moderator on it uh, and I would say some of the other people who moderate it are more active than myself mm-hmm. I think there is definitely kind of a, like it's not officially part of our job you know it's not in our conditions to do this but there is definitely kind of, it is definitely there is like definitely a push to use social media more because then you can, like as you said, you can promote your work, you know, you, you get more visibility. Also because, um, like you said, like academics have to apply for funding for research grants to do our projects. And uh, if we kind of post about it on social media and we can show that there has been a lot of engagement, we can kind of use this as kind of, you know, look, we have made some impact because people have engaged with with this post on social media and this post is about our report on such and such thing. Mm. Um, in terms of how much time I spend on social media, I don't know, it fluctuates. Sometimes yeah, if we are going to a conference or if we have published a report you know, and I post about it, there is a bit more kind of time. But then sometimes I go weeks without posting anything because there are other things that I'm focusing on. And like I said, I'm not as active on social media as maybe some of my colleagues are. Has it been useful to you at all in terms of finding kind of subjects and like participant candidates for research? Like how did you, for example, with the Roma work, how did you kind of get in there initially? Was that, were you introduced by another organisation or like how did you sort of start that, I guess? So um, I used to work as a as an interpreter, like public service interpreter, and 
I started doing that job when I lived in London. Mm-hmm. So I lived in London for nine or ten years mm-hmm. uh, between 2000 and 2010. Yeah, so for ten years. Uh, and a lot of the time, well, maybe half of the time, I worked as a public service interpreter. Mm-hmm. So I did uh, interpreting work for social services, for like various healthcare settings. And through this work, I met a lot of Roma people. Mm-hmm. And by kind of meeting Roma and talking to them when you know, they were waiting for a medical appointment or something, I kind of got interested in this topic as well because um, I could see that people moved away from Czech Republic, Slovakia, to kind of move to the UK to have a better life, to maybe get away from discrimination and prejudice that they experienced there. But they still struggled. They still struggled, you know, with poverty, you know, they, they, a lot of them, a lot of people ended up in minimum wage jobs. Um, they struggled with English. Um, and then kind of, as you are probably aware, you know, like if you are in minimum wage jobs, if you experience a lot of stress, it has impact on your health. It can also kind of, all this kind of stress, maybe chaos in your life, having to go to, having to kind of do kind of shitty jobs, you know, that are not good for your health, that impacts your health. So people, um, like there is a lot of kind of health inequalities that people experience. Mm. Um, and even with social services, um, I was kind of surprised that a lot of Roma were still kind of uh, in contact, ended up being in contact and being kind of scrutinized by social care social services in the UK and a lot of them had like child protection issues or child protection proceedings Um, and often the causes behind it were things like poverty, domestic violence and this kind of struggle that people you know had which then impacted their family life which like obviously it will be if if you're poor you don't know you know how you're gonna get food you might not be entitled to benefits or you might be sanctioned by the job center because you missed your appointment for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. You don't speak English very well, so you struggle to explain it, why you missed things. So there was like a lot of things going on around that kind of led to people maybe being unfairly kind of treated also by the social services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm kind of going away from your question now. But yeah, so kind of this this job that I was doing as a public service interpreter, it kind of got me interested in the topic that I was, I then ended up doing for my PhD. Yeah. And it also kind of then acted as my um, gateway mm-hmm. towards, you know, to, to like the community, because uh, I kind of knew I could meet in the same people, yeah. or, you know, I got known by the community. Um, and then I was, you know, I approached people to ask if I could speak to them for my research. Um, so it wasn't, that wasn't through social media, but I then did end up kind of using social media for my, during my research. Um, so I did like 12 months of field work, which was in Leeds, because I moved to Leeds to do my PhD here. Um, and um, then no, I spent like yeah a lot of time with talking to Roma, kind of just made friends with them as well, and then uh, that was in 2013, 14. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people used Facebook then, mm-hmm. and I did use kind of Facebook chat 
messenger to keep in touch with people and kind of you know it was it became kind of part of the mm. like a I guess research tool because you can talk to people online mm. again in the same in the project that I'm working on um, I have used um, Facebook to contact people Facebook and LinkedIn to kind of approach people to see if they would be willing to talk to me for the research. So as kind of recruitment tool, mm. you know, you can advertise your project, you can kind of see if people would be interested in talking to you. Yeah. I mean, I guess we should kind of mention the area of your research at the moment. So you, you're kind of looking at Brexit and COVID and the effects of those. So I'm going to go into the climate change question before we go into kind of Brexit and COVID. Um, but there's a migration element there, so I, I expect that's where you know maybe this will intersect in terms of climate change. But is there anything like does climate change play a part in your work? Is it something that you can actively work on? Can you do anything in terms of mitigation, adaptation, raising awareness, or yeah, how does how does climate change sort of affect your work? Yeah, I think that's like a. It's a huge question, sorry. <laughs> it is a huge question, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, I think it's also difficult to kind of separate how it affects me like personally with like all the anxiety around climate change and how then it impacts my work. I think like there's definitely this kind of shift towards digitalize, you know, being online more, using kind of digitalization. And I think with COVID, when like everything moved online very quickly, and now there is still this kind of shift that a lot of meetings can move, you know, can be online, um, which kind of it was, you know, I think it was moving that way. But mm. when COVID happened, it kind of speeded this change very much. Mm. So I think definitely people try to kind of meet online more than they used to, mm-hmm. which I don't think it was necessarily like because of climate concerns, maybe a bit, but it definitely has kind of. COVID shifted it mm. there mm. and also in many cases people prefer to just meet online because it saves travel mm. but uh, it is definitely kind of linked to climate change too or maybe it's a way where we can reduce travel and make things a bit more environmentally friendly. Mm. I think because of the nature of my job it doesn't like really affect me so much personally mm-hmm. climate change like my specific job uh, in terms of the topic that I'm researching, I think because I'm looking at kind of um, how changes in migration policy after Brexit has changed uh, work and kind of labor, short, how it has impacted labor shortages in low-paid sectors in the UK. So I, th- I think climate change will definitely be it will have an impact on the sectors that we are researching. But um, I'm not sure if that's like clear yet to people mm. how it will affect them. But also I think people have kind of pressing concerns now with the cost of living, with kind of labor shortages or health issues. So not everyone is kind of having climate change at the forefront of their thinking. Mm. Even though, like, there is a lot of you know, a lot of the, lot of companies in the sector are trying to kind of uh, make changes to, 
towards being more environmentally friendly. Mm. Though, kind of having said this, I think there is also, like in many industries, there is a lot of greenwashing where companies just kind of try to appear environmentally friendly without actually making changes that will reduce the environmental impact meaningfully. Um, I know with sort of the Arts Council and their, their funding and their funding applications now, there's a climate element within that. Is there anything sort of similar within academic grants and funding and so on? Is that something that's kind of appeared in the conditions yet that you need some kind of metric on that? I'm not sure there is. There is definitely kind of... Because um, I know some of my colleagues do like work on, um, mm. on climate issues. And uh, I know the university is kind of looking at the impact of travel and trying to kind of make changes in, like, for example, travel to conferences. Uh, so they are calculating kind of the climate impact of that and how to kind of make uh, travel more environmentally friendly, for example, by using trains. Mm. If you go somewhere where, you know, you can, like in Europe, you can use trains rather than flying. Um, in terms of grants, uh, I don't think there needs to be an environmental assessment, but to be honest, I'm not sure. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that will ultimately come to everything, that you'll have to kind of calculate what your impact will be. Um, because, yeah, that'll be the kind of information that we need to know. But, that, you know, you're starting to see some of that, like they put the sort of, you know, like the amount of carbon on flights and things like that. So, but that helps from, like, I know that helps from a consumer perspective of just giving people the information of, like, this does this. And it's like having the, this has this much fat in it and so on. Just gives you more options and more choice. Yeah, I mean, definitely, if you kind of see the impact that your I don't know, chosen mode of transport is having mm. or kind of your chosen food is having on the environment, then, mm. uh, but at least in my case, it does make me think a bit more about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if Shell had to publish with their sort of earnings, it's like our record or earnings. Also, here's the record amount of damage we've done. <laughs> a big number underneath of like megatons of carbon produced by them. Um, so I think that's, that's climate change mainly covered, unless you want to say anything else on, on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I don't know, I think uh, climate change is like one of the main issues or probably the main issue that we are going to face in the coming years um, and it is going to impact all the industries eventually mm. because you know how we're going to so how we source food is going to be impacted hugely by climate change mm. transport as well mm -hmm. um, supplies so as well I mean, because if you've got you know if you've got something like an entire city or an island going underwater yeah then that's you know i mean that's a huge market impact if nothing else it is definitely going to have an impact on like migration as well mm -hmm. because people will have to move out of areas that will become unlivable or where people will not be able to grow food mm -hmm. um, so it is going to kind of impact have an impact in this term as well on how you know people move in uh, from places to places that will become yeah Mm. unlivable or just 
difficult to live in. And I, oh, to, don't say. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of kind of what you mentioned as well, I think about kind of food production and how we move food and how we grow, mm. because. Uh, I'm sure it's going to have an impact on, on that as well, mm. this kind of mobility of goods mm. yeah, and production. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I was going to say then was in terms of skills, like labour skills and so on, like when you've got sort of people moving around in large numbers in, in kind of, you know, sort of unplanned and unforeseen ways, as you, you know, try to, as societies try to negotiate these sort of movements of people, it will be an issue of like, we need these skills and we need those skills and we need to put people in here and just the whole sort of organising of society is going to be very, very complex, I think, going forward. Yeah, I think the issue of like skills, um, there are, I think the issue of skills is kind of, um, it is there now mm. that there aren't really enough people with the skills that actually, you know, we need for the jobs that kind of, uh, Run our society, mm. but also I think the skills that yeah the skills that will be needed will probably be different. You know, like it will kind of it might change what types of skills people need mm. um, as kind of all this impact will become more visible. Mm. So yeah, and I think ideally we would start planning now mm. you know, for for this future impact, yeah. We'll, we'll start with COVID and then go to Brexit because it kind of happened in that order. Like, I want you to kind of think about when we went into lockdown as well, uh, going into this question. But the question again is like, how it's affected your work? What are the kind of permanent changes that came out of it? Obviously, if you want to bring in, in any of the research, that's also relevant, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, take us through sort of your experience going into lockdown and was that sort of, I found that people either had a huge increase in work where they're like, I've got so much to do now, I've got to contact all my clients and let everybody know what's going on and like we've got so much firefighting to do. Or they kind of, everything dropped off and everything was cancelled and you just kind of, you didn't have much to do. Obviously there'll be some people in the middle of that, um, but how was the experience for you and then what do you think are or what do you feel are the changes for you coming out of COVID in terms of like how it's changed your work permanently? In academia, a lot of people are on fixed-term contracts and they kind of move from project to project. So when before COVID or like yeah, in like January 2020, uh, I started a job in the, at the University of Loughborough and uh, it was a project that was kind of researching um, the role of media in like, growing populism in four different countries in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my kind of focus was Czech Republic. Uh, and I went to Czech Republic to do field work, to do inter- research interviews in February 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had like 30 interviews to complete with people. And as I was, I think that was middle of February when I started. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, it was, there was this kind of news about this new virus being in China, mm-hmm. but no one really knew what was going to happen. Uh, and yeah, it was kind of really busy three weeks for me, just trying to find people to interview, 
completing the interviews. Then the news were coming from like Italy that uh, you know COVID was kind of spreading there. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly someone in Czech Republic had COVID mm-hmm. uh, while I was still there, and then like, I think a few, two or three cases were identified, um, and then. I wasn't really paying that much attention to news because I was just so busy with doing my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they were kind of started talking about bringing in restrictions. And so basically what happened for me was I finished my last interview that I had to do on Sunday morning. I think it was the 8th of March. Flew back to Leeds on the in the evening that day. And then the following day, the Czech Prime Minister decided to kind of close borders and restrict travel. So that was kind of intense. Nothing was happening in the UK at the time in terms of this. Like the restrictions here were brought in, I think, two weeks later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, that was a very strange time for me mm-hmm. then. In terms of my work at the time, so. Um, I completed the first set of interviews and then I just had like some things that I was able to do from home because um, I live in Leeds and the job was at the University of Loughborough. So the plan was to kind of mostly work from home anyway and then like go in once or twice a week. Uh, We ended up not going in, just working from home and kind of we quickly moved to like having team meetings online. my colleagues, the people who were doing interviews in the other three countries, they stayed there in in their in the Poland, Hungary, and Serbia. So they stayed in their countries and they stayed there like throughout lockdowns. Then, as part of this project, we were meant to like the plan was to go back in April and do follow up interviews. Mm-hmm. But obviously, this didn't happen, so we had to kind of quickly like rearrange and move people arrange to meet with people online and do the interviews over the phone. Then in April, I got ill and I just like had like fever, really horrible cough. I was really tired. So even though like I wasn't able to test, I'm pretty sure I had COVID at the time. It just swept me out for a few weeks. So that was really difficult because um, I had this new job that I really needed to keep. I was meant to do these interviews, but I was really ill. Um, well, luckily, like, sort of luckily, because we were able to just talk to people over the phone or online, mm. I did, like, manage, even though it took me longer, I did manage to, like, complete the interviews and do that. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know, It's it was kind of... Um, yeah, it was pretty intense, and also I had a child that was in nursery, who then like the nursery closed, you know, when the when the restrictions came in, so it was kind of really difficult to juggle everything, mm. you know, having this kind of job, trying to do the interviews, feeling ill, mm-hmm. um, and, and then having, news is in chaos at this point as well, so it's not like you yeah. can turn to anywhere to sort of make sense of sense of things. Yeah, and yeah, it was just like a lot of information as well, mm. and because the project I was working on was actually kind of looking at kind of media and how information was communicated in media. I was on, I was like checking media all the time. Yeah. Not just the British media, but also the Czech media, yeah. because that was the focus of the project. So yeah, it was kind of really intense. 
uh, anyway, like got through that. It was just like a six months, uh, six months contract. Mm-hmm. So I ended up ended the job. The job ended in I think July. Um, and then I had a couple of months when I was out of work. Mm-hmm. I think I went back to doing some interpreting work at the time. And then in October, I started a job in Leeds at Leeds University, which was also very strange joining like a new workplace during COVID mm-hmm. because uh, there was still kind of restrictions. Everyone was working from home. It wasn't like possible to go in and meet your colleagues. Mm-hmm. It kind of felt quite isolating at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm lucky because I can work from home, you know, like a lot of the work mm-hmm. um, that... I do can be just done on the computer, uh, which is kind of different to people in like hospitality or kind of food processing who have to go in, and who were kind of or, you know people in in care who are, who were kind of more exposed. It was different challenges, but it was a challenging time. Uh, and in terms of kind of how it impacted on the actual job so yeah I guess I already mentioned that it's kind of because it's because it's social sciences you know I do usually like normally you would go and talk to people yeah. uh, interview them you get like a different uh, it's kind of different kind of approaching people in person to then kind of suddenly have to try to shift all your research online yeah. um, and try to establish rapport with people kind of yeah. online recruit people yeah. online it's um it's possible, but it's kind of, you know, you do have to kind of uh, be a bit creative and yeah. think of different ways yeah. of uh, approaching people and of doing the research. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of a long-winded <laughs> answer. No, as well. no. I, I mean, it was a long period of time. And like, I, I mean, that sounds like, you know, a really kind of hellish sort of initial period <laughs> going, going into that. Um, I mean, sort of coming out the other side, was it, because that was a weird, inexper- weird experience in itself, and in a lot of ways, like last year, we were, you know, even though we're supposedly all open up, we were still, like this year's significantly different to last year, even though, yeah, I am. It's, it, it's weird. We're in a weird sort of space af- after COVID. I suppose we'll we'll get into it a bit more, but yeah, coming out of COVID was that sort of just was it kind of. You just went into the office a bit more, but you still had sort of working from home experiences because I know, you know, Leeds is an employer that sort of offers hybrid working depending on your role. Um, so, yeah, what what was that like? Was it kind of just a natural evolution back into work or was it kind of a, a big change where they're like, all right, everybody back in now? No, so... Um... Uh, COVID has definitely impacted, uh, it has definitely changed how people work. It's changed everything really, hasn't it? Yeah, and people still tend to just work from home a lot unless you have to come in. Mm. Like, uh, you know, if you have a meeting on campus or if you're teaching, so people, Mm -hmm. a lot of people come in on their teaching days, but some people just come in, do the teaching and then go home. Mm. Uh, I think it's different for admin staff. I think they are, uh, there is more kind of pressure on them to be on site, Mm -hmm. to work from the office. But I think for academic staff, um, at least in my department, um, there is a lot of flexibility. So we are able to work from home a lot. 
uh, though like the meetings, um, departmental meetings, they are back like on site in person. But uh, yeah, I think it has definitely kind of changed also our like, mindset that, you know, like now we know we can work from home mm. and a lot of people prefer it. Mm. Um, like I do like it, like I do like to go in sometimes mm. because I like to meet my colleagues and it's kind of having this kind of social aspect of the job. I think it's important as well. Mm. But at the same time, if I had to commute every day, and I mean, it's not a long commute for me anyway, mm. but uh, I have to do the school run mm. And then I can just go home. You know, it's like five minutes from home, from school to my house, and then I can work, uh, which still saves me time. Mm -hmm. Then if if I had to go to campus every day, it would kind of take me longer. Yeah, it's hours of your week you get back, isn't it? Of like just working from home, and you know, you don't need to spend that money on travel if you're getting transport in. Like you know, even if you're driving, then you, you don't have to spend that petrol money. So. Yeah, it makes so much sense that you're kind of like, but it's not always that pleasant, is it? There is the kind of loneliness and isolation and also just the motivation issue. Like, you know, I mean, working in academia, like, you must find, I know when I did my study, it was the best place for me to be to go and write was the library because you get less distractions and the distractions that are there are things like books, so... <laughs> you, if you are distracted, you're just learning more, so you're doing more research. Um, yeah, sorry, I'll let you respond. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. It's like it, it does help with motivation to like go in and see your colleagues, mm. and kind of because then you can also talk about your research, mm. you know, about work. So I think it does help me, does help to motivate me, uh, going in and seeing colleagues and being on site, also seeing students. Mm. It is nice to be on site. But it's nice not to have to do it every day, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. And I cycle to work, so it's kind of not, you know, I don't have to deal with buses or cars. Uh, but it still does kind of add, like, yeah, going there and back, it adds like 45 minutes mm. to my day. So not having to do this every day is great. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Before I move on to Brexit, I want to spend a little bit of time just on, because through the lockdown, because there was all the focus on mental health and checking in with people and you know discussions of loneliness and isolation discussions of separation of work and home and having space and all of these kind of things were you did you have sort of separate space to work in were you quite good at sort of keeping that work and home barrier kind of quite definite or does that not really matter anymore is that just sort of like work and home are kind of blended into one thing. Yeah, I don't think I'm... I think I'm getting better at kind of separating home and work. Mm. But I think at the first... uh, the first few months, it was really difficult. I mean, I think in general, even before, because, like, um, I was self-employed when I was doing the interpreting, Mm. then I was doing my PhD, and I kind of... um, I had a baby during the PhD, so a lot of, like, the writing up had to be done in the evenings around kind of childcare and then around teaching as well. Uh, and yeah, the first few months of lockdown, just like trying to kind of juggle work and childcare, it's uh, it was just very difficult. Mm. So I don't think there was like a clear separation. Oh, I'm gonna work from 
I don't know, nine to five, yeah. and then I'm gonna have the evening off. No, there was like work when I can. Like um, I did work a lot of evenings as well. It was kind of intense, mm. um, and I think it did continue for a while. I think it's kind of in general academics are a bit like that. I think I'm getting better at this. That you know, I don't. Unless I really have to, I don't really open my computer over the weekend. Mm. But then you have intense, sometimes mm. you have like intense periods of time when you have I don't know, a lot of marking or you have like, a, you want to write a grant application. Mm. So just end up working evenings or mm. on the weekend as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, ideally, you, you are benefiting. So I'm thinking here of like, you know, when you have to do basically like uh, cramming or, or crunching, as we'll call it in tech, of like, you have to do loads of work in an extended period of time. Like if you're doing a show or you've got a presentation or you've got some piece of work that you've got to do. I think that's, you know, that's always going to come up. But so long as you've got the flexibility to have, you know, an equal amount of downtime to balance that of like, or, you know, I get a bit longer or I get a bit extra holiday. I think that that makes it fine because it's all right to do, you know, loads of hours and work really intensely every now and then. I think that's that's quite healthy and it's quite good fun sometimes. It's quite nice to have the challenge of sort of everything together. Your experience doesn't sound fun. It's, <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds kind of heavy. Were you Were you sort of on the... I mean, it sounds like it was a kind of like we we just get through today and then we'll get through tomorrow. And was it kind of were you taking things day by day because you couldn't really plan because you didn't know what was going on or what was going to happen? Yeah, I don't think I was like even thinking of what's going to happen. Mm. I was just exhausted, I think. Um, and also, yeah, because I had COVID, uh, like obviously not tested positive because mm. they weren't tests, but I, it was like no other illness I had before. Mm -hmm. um, and just the fact that you know I did kind of talking exhausted me, so I'm pretty sure it was COVID. Mm. And I just like for like two or three months after, I would just get tired like really quickly. Mm. Yeah, like activities that I used to do before, like normally it, they just exhausted me. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was like I'm I'm pretty sure I wasn't like thinking very much ahead I was just trying to kind of do what I had to do yeah but I think it was like that for a lot of people because yeah. no one really knew what was going to happen it was like a very strange time mm. um, and yeah I mean I was kind of lucky in on one hand that I didn't have to do teaching because I think people who had to do teaching and they had to move like everything online in a week yeah it was really difficult for them yeah, yeah. okay so this is more um, I think more of a kind of speculative inquiry because um, I'm just interested but I've found you know the, the sort of so one of the things coming out of lockdown was because everything had slowed down so much I found that like generally it was kind of I could cope with doing like one thing a day like because you know it's like so long as I've done one thing but if you had to do like lots of stuff it seemed a bit overwhelming because it's like I'm not used to this anymore <laughs> like doing more than one thing in a day um and I don't think I've fully recovered from that yet and I've also like I, I you know my social life still hasn't recovered fully from that yet um 
I mean, like, I, what I'm thinking about is sort of longer term effects. And we have gone into that sort of, we've gone into a space where we're largely like, oh, no, that never happened. And we kind of, especially in the media, we've kind of forgotten and that's kind of gone away. Um, and we, as a society, we seem to do that pretty quickly anyway of like, oh, it's all over now. It never happened. Um, yeah. Yeah. I haven't really got a question to this, but I'll, I'll let you respond to, to what I said. If, you, if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, I mean, I have definitely, like, not gone back to the social life I had before. Mm. I mean, I I, mean, I haven't said this. I didn't have, like, a lot of social, much social life because I did have a little kid. Yeah. Uh, and, like, <laughs> yeah, it was just, like, kind of intense in other ways. Uh, but, like, yeah, I have... I th- I'm still kind of careful. I want to be, like, cautious about COVID, so I do still kind of try to avoid crowded places. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't kind of... I do think twice about kind of where I'm going to go. Like, I, I don't really... I haven't been to a gig mm-hmm. since, like, COVID happened, mm-hmm. and I did... I would... You know, I like seeing live music. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's worth the risk. Um I have been to like outdoor places. That's like you know I don't mind that, but like indoor crowded places, I don't really. I don't know. I kind of think is this worth it? You know, do I want to get COVID again? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and I think even though it's like you say, there is this kind of collective amnesia when people just kind of mm-hmm. act as if we're back in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if other people have the same thoughts as me, if they kind of think, oh, you know, am I going to get COVID if I go there? Uh, maybe they don't. Uh, I feel like we don't really talk about it. Mm. Um, so again, with Brexit, the, the question is, you know, how has it actually affected your work? Has it affected your work? So, yeah, have you noticed any change in your work because of Brexit? I would imagine the answer for you is yes. <laughs> it's, it's an area that you're looking at. So. Yeah. I mean, in terms of this, it has definitely kind of, I have, because I research migration, yeah. uh, and because the people, like the Roma migrants, they are EU, EU migrants, mm-hmm. and I am an EU migrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have like definitely kind of uh, noticed impact. Like in terms of like this whole immigration status, it hasn't really impacted me because I have uh, dual citizenship now. Mm-hmm. I'm a British and Czech citizen, so, and I did that like before Brexit. I did that years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in terms of that, it hasn't really impacted me. I don't know. It has like, I mean, again, this would just kind of be like a personal experience, not really related to work, mm-hmm. but uh, it was like a really. When the referendum result came, and I I was expecting it to be a leaf mm-hmm. result because just because I researched migration and I was following social media and media and I kind of just had a feeling it is going to be the result that mm-hmm. it ended up being. But when that was confirmed, it just felt so unpleasant. Mm. Yeah, it's like uh, it did affect me in the sense like I did think a lot about leaving the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but because um, in 2016 I was still finishing my PhD, but also like I had a you know family here, a house, mm-hmm. kind of job. You have kind of 
you end up having ties to the country. Mm. You kind of put down roots. Yeah. It's not that easy to kind of uh, yeah, uproot yourself yeah. again. Um, and, and it takes time to establish yourself somewhere as well, doesn't it? I mean, like every yeah. time you move, it's just like, all right, well, I'm going to whip sticks. You get somewhere else. You, you you know first of all you've got to find a job and then you've got to build a social circle and then you you know you, you've got to get your apartment sorted or your bills you've got to organize your doctor like so much stuff to do just to kind of get your foot established and and then if you're moving again and you as you get older you're kind of like i haven't got the energy for that all the time and yeah, I think it also is harder to like meet new, make new connections as you get older. Yeah. You know, because people have already made their connections. Yeah. So, you know, they like there might not be space for you to kind of be included. Yeah. Or I don't know, you just kind of and and like you said, you don't really have the energy to kind of keep making new connections. Yeah, you know, and you, you don't just... want to go out all the time because you're not in your twenties anymore. And like, and that is, you know, that's how you meet people, isn't it? It's like going out and going yeah. to stuff and doing things. But you're kind of like, you get to a point where you're like, I don't want to do that. I'm tired. <laughs> it's cold. It's rainy. I'll stay in. I'll meet people another time. But then you don't yeah. because, you, you know, you're not going to places where you can meet people. Yeah, I mean, in terms of, like, the impact of Brexit, like, even though, like I said, it didn't, like, really impact me, like, that much in terms of work. Mm. Um, I know because I was kind of still occasionally interpreting at the time when kind of we were moving towards actual Brexit. Mm. Uh, and I know, like, I remember, like, being asked to provide, like, a proof that, uh, you know, I am entitled to work in the UK, mm -hmm. proof that, like, people have registered with the, like, EU settlement scheme, mm -hmm. even before this was, like, compulsory. So, kind of, uh, again, this kind of being asked by your employer, to kind of prove that you're entitled, yeah. even though at the time, you know, there was still kind of free movement and EU citizens were, had the right to come here and work here. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously, like, some employers weren't really aware of it. I don't think there was, like, clear information of, you know, well, for now, EU citizens still have the right, you know, you shouldn't really be asking them mm -hmm. to prove their right to work before this and this date. So kind of having to kind of show this, prove kind of prove that you have a right to be here it just felt very unpleasant mm. again it's kind of you know it makes you feel well i was able to do this before now i have to kind of show proof that i, I can actually be here it just kind of makes me feel unwanted mm. uh, so i know that's not kind of specifically about kind of impacting the work but it's kind of how work is linked to your other life you know your just mm -hmm. social life and kind of how you feel mm -hmm. Because uh, I think if you kind of feel, have a good relationship with your employer, you feel kind of happy at work, mm -hmm. you kind of feel kind of more welcome in the country, you mm -hmm. kind of feel kind of in general kind of, yeah, like you can put down roots, mm -hmm. you can settle in a speci specific place, yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas if like the kind of relationship with your employer is a bit kind of, uh, you know, antagonistic or you have to kind of keep proving something, it becomes a bit kind of unpleasant. Yeah, and stressful. If that kind of makes sense, yeah. Yeah. And because, you know, for most people, it's where you spend the most time. So, yeah. yeah. If, if, if work's bad, it can make everything else much worse. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, what are you kind of finding on the Brexit front? I mean, like, if there's things that you 
don't want to talk about or don't want to go into that's fine but um yeah is there anything that you can tell us kind of what what you're seeing are you seeing kind of anything different from what the news is saying or is it too early to talk conclusions or like i i'm just curious to sort of see what's what's coming up and what the kind of the way things are leaning from what you yeah, so so like in terms of the, the the research that I'm working on, so it's not just me; it's like a team mm -hmm. of seven or eight of us, um, and the project focuses on like low-paid, for low-paid sectors. So like uh, social care, adult social care, uh, hospitality, mm -hmm. food processing, and logistics and warehousing. So kind of there are sectors that have like you know a decent portion of migrant workers mm -hmm. and. Yeah, we're kind of looking at how, you know, if there are labor shortages, uh, how are employers responding to them? Are they, like, looking to recruit from other groups? Are they looking to kind of use more of a automation to kind of be less reliant on human labor? Uh, and I think Brexit has kind of had impact on employers in terms of uh, yeah there isn't kind of this access to you know EU workers who were able to come and go as they wanted mm -hmm. so if there was like a lot of demand here people could have just come and go whereas now this is this kind of pool of mobile mm -hmm. workers is not here mm. and there isn't just like enough domestic UK workers entering the sectors mm. uh, and also, I guess Brexit had, had had an impact in terms of more bureaucracy. Mm. So it has kind of put this kind of a higher bureaucratic burden mm. on you know on the on the companies, mm. uh, both in terms of hiring, I would say, because like you know if you have to hire from abroad, mm. you can't just get like an EU worker mm. without you know really kind of needing to do a lot of paperwork. Now, if you want to hire from abroad, there is a lot of paperwork that you have to go through. Uh, you also have to like if you employ someone from EU who has like who lived here before and has kind of uh, settled status, you still have to kind of do more checking. Mm. You know, you have to check that they have the right to work. Mm. So there is kind of more. I would say there is more bureaucratic burden on employers, mm. and yeah, it has kind of made I think importing and exporting harder, mm. and kind of recruiting from abroad. Mm. Yeah, mm. I think what's also interesting is um, so kind of looking at these sectors is kind of it's good to look at kind of movement between the sectors as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, in hospitality, there uh, you know it used to be a lot of people from the EU come in and work in hospitality, mm -hmm. even like temporarily, or kind of they would come work here for a bit and leave and then come again. Um, if they're not here, there is kind of now more jobs available. Mm -hmm. So people from other sectors might be kind of leaving to these other jobs. Mm -hmm. So it's there is kind of like a you know knock-on effect. Yeah, like they have to fill those spaces, and then that takes people away from other areas. And yeah, yeah. And of course, the ones that yeah, the ones that are paying better for those kind of roles, they're the ones that will get snapped at first because if you're looking, if you're working in that area, you, you you know, there's still an incentive to kind of get as much as you can for the work that you're doing, even though it's largely low-paid work. 
Yeah, but then like if you have, I don't know, 20p or 50p more somewhere else mm. per hour, then you are going to take that yeah. because uh, it's still going to make a difference yeah. at the end of the month. Yeah. 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 So if there was a universal basic income, you're getting an amount of money each month that um, gives you that reassurance, gives you some level of additional security. Um, how would that affect your work? Would you still work? Would you still be doing the same job if you're still working? Would you be doing it the same way? Would it be a matter of kind of reducing the hours? Or would you look for other kind of flexibilities? Like, what, how would a UBI change work for you, do you think? Yeah, it's like difficult to imagine having this kind mm. of security. But I think the main thing for me, I would like to le- work less hours. Mm. Yeah, like I would, uh, I do like research and, uh, you know, I think... Uh, as it is, it's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, you know I can't really complain about this. I, I do, I would probably still like to do some research, though. Um, if there is a universal basic income, maybe my job would be redundant. But uh, yeah, I think the main thing for me would be like I would like to work less hours. I think if I could just work like four days a week, mm. that would be ideal for me. I think I would still kind of like to, yeah, I don't think I would just completely like leave work, mm. but I think I would like to do some like other things like, you know, have an allotment and grow, th- grow food and just kind of have other, other kind of productive things, like, yeah. you know, productive in a different way, yeah. but yeah, have the time to do them. I don't know, like I am all for kind of uh, redistributing of, redistribution of wealth. Mm. I think kind of the less inequality there is, the, like it will be the better our society will be for everybody. Mm. Um, but uh, that's not really like answering your question of how it would impact my work. I think, uh, uh, well, yeah, but I think it, it does to a degree in that, okay, we have improved social outcomes and better social cohesion. Therefore, <laughs> my work has improved as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if everyone had like universal basic income, it would just reduce a lot of stress. I mean, and if it was kind of a livable mm. income and not like what people get from the job center now yeah. because that is not livable. No. Yeah, so if it was like a livable income, uh, I do think it would just reduce a lot of stress for a lot of people. Mm. Um, and I don't know, maybe improve working conditions as well because people wouldn't have to put up mm. with horrible working conditions mm. with like working long hours or working in unsafe workplaces mm. like um, but i think it would just kind of require rethinking mm. of how we work and how we want like, our society to operate to function because um, yeah i mean there are a lot of kind of exploitative jobs mm. there are a lot of like you know a lot of people work in unsafe conditions or they have to work long hours mm. And I think if there was universal basic income, this would have to change Mm. or it would just change naturally. Yeah, I I think as well, one thing that I haven't heard people kind of say when we have discussed UBI, and I think it I think it is a factor and I think it's an underestimated one, is that it would just be, first of all, there's putting money in people's pockets, but second of all, it would give people a stake. Like, what stake do we have? in the country every anymore like everything's been privatized like our votes are worthless like uh, you know what what is 
the country even. Like it, with the UBI, for me at least, I think it would be like, okay, so I am part of something. I do belong to a thing and I do have, you know, I, I have a role here. Whereas, you know, as we are at the moment, it's kind of, you're just a person who says things and, you know, you're either in the team that all agrees on that thing or you're in the team that doesn't agree with that thing. But it doesn't really translate into kind of democratic voice for want of an, a better expression. Um, I'm not going to get you to respond to that because that's quite charged. So, <laughs> But yeah. I mean, feel free I mean, to if you want it. But you know, it's good to no, I was just thinking about kind of in terms of like, because you were asking about climate change as mm. well. And I think probably, I think like having universal basic income and just kind of better conditions and like, yeah, maybe letting people work fewer hours mm. would definitely be better for for climate yeah. because people would have time like, you know, have allotments and grow yeah. their food or just spend time like outdoors. Yeah. And it would just, yeah, I think I'm sure it would be better for kind of... Uh, for the for the environment as well mm. and uh, yeah i think like in general kind of having um less inequality mm. and kind of uh would be better for the environment mm. it's because it's like you said like people would have you know in one on one hand people kind of would have more stake in like society mm. making things function but also maybe people would have, you know, if people didn't have to worry about uh, how they're going to pay their next bill, mm. how they're going to kind of, you know, they, are they going to have enough money for food at the end of the month, mm. they would be able to kind of think, they would have the headspace mm. to kind of think about issues like, you know, climate change and maybe changing their lifestyle mm. um, and kind of maybe having more kind of environmentally friendly lifestyle if they wouldn't have to worry about money, mm. you know. Mm if that makes sense yeah i don't know if i kind of articulated it well no no that i mean that makes perfect sense and another thing that's kind of come up recently you know i mentioned everything sort of being privatized which you know is hyperbole to an extent but um yeah the other thing that's sort of come up and it's something i mentioned on the podcast before but it's the, the third spaces thing and it's come up with me recently a couple of times and someone was making the point that, like, you know, all of these sort of, you know, we're always worried about the youth and young people and how, how they're doing everything wrong. Um, but one of the things in terms of, like, blaming millennials or Zoomers of, like, you know, they're just always on their phone. But it's like, but they don't have spaces to go and hang out in, like, yeah. as much. And, you know, like, I mean, we always got moved on when we were kids if we were you know, drinking in the park or whatever. But... There were other places to go and hang out and to do things, and that seems to be less and less. I mean, there is more stuff and more spaces, but all of them charge. Um, so I think that's that's a thing that needs to to happen as well. And I think that's something from again from COVID that you know when everyone was locked in their houses, all of a sudden there were people going, well, loads of people don't have gardens and don't have access to parks, and now their health outcomes are going to be terrible because they're getting no movement in their life and there's nowhere to go kind of thing um, and I think that's undervalued like those those spaces need to be available for everyone and to everyone no yeah I, I do agree completely that you know like having like public spaces where people can meet mm. and like kids can hang out mm. that, that is important yeah mm. 
I, yeah, especially for. Um, I mean, I mean, you've got these online spaces, but again, if people aren't online, and how healthy are they? It's like okay, so I've got a space where I can hang out with people from all around the world who I'm never going to meet, or if I am going to meet, I'm going to have to travel. You know, I'm going to have to put a lot of carbon into the sky to go and meet these people, and but you're not meeting the people that are around you and on your doorstep because you know you need to find your your tribe or whatever and especially when you're younger you know things like music what kind of music you're into and what kind of books you like and all of these things are really kind of important to you um so i understand the desire to sort of like i need to meet people who are exactly like me and my interests and i can do that online but then you're losing a whole bunch of other potential social skills that you have to develop and negotiating with people who you will like and get on with, but don't necessarily have all the same interests as you. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it does make perfect sense. I mean, I, I'm, I think there is a lot of like positive aspects around having this like online, um, you know, like digital world and having mm. online spaces. Uh, even in terms of like you know networking and self-help groups and like that but also there is a lot of kind of yeah I mean there is a danger of kind of just getting stuck in the online world mm. and not interacting in the real world mm. like, like you said yeah but I think it's like really hard for young people now there's a lot of pressure mm. to yeah I think there is a, like a lot of a lot of challenges that young people have to deal with and a lot of pressure to conform like mm. uh, but yeah. Do you think if you just come into this role, for example, as as we went into lockdown, because a lot of people started their career, you know, it, it was a long time and everybody was doing everything. So all experiences happened during lockdown. But there will be plenty of people who went into the workforce for the first time. And, and, and I've spoken to some, but it, it, how do you think you would have felt? if that was your first experience of work, you know, like doing everything remotely, because obviously obviously you've got years of prior experience, of work experience, so that's an adjustment that you can make and you know sort of what you need for work, but I think going into that for the first time would have been kind of a weird experience. Yeah, I mean, it was weird already, like, and I did, yeah. like you say, I did have experience before, and I think... So like even though I was in academia before because I was like doing my PhD, I was doing some teaching at the same time. Mm. But then like starting a new role during like the restrictions, I think it did like I'm sure it has impacted me and kind of this you know and maybe like slowed people down because mm. there is this thing like you do need to go and meet people, you do need to kind of make this kind of networking mm. and uh, and if people who started before and you know, they were already established uh, and they have kind of maybe met their, you know, they have met their colleagues in person, like they they knew them, you know, they used to like go for drinks before like mm. COVID happened. Mm. Uh, it's completely different to kind of starting kind of during lockdown when you kind of, you can't go out for drinks, mm. you can't go out for coffee with your colleagues. You only speak to them during meetings online, but then you don't have kind of this kind of chat that you would normally have with people over coffee mm. before or after the meeting. Mm. And I think if people only have this online experience, it will, yeah, I'm sure people must have felt very isolated if mm. it was like your first experience of a workplace mm. just starting online. Mm. I mean, I think 
it seems like a lot of companies are pushing for people to be back on site at least part of the week. Mm. But I've also heard like of companies kind of now doing hot desking, mm. so people have to share their desk. Mm. They use kind of this you know lockdown and COVID era to reduce the desk space. Mm -hmm. So now people do not have their own desk. Mm -hmm. They have it for half a week and then someone else has it for the other half of week. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of uh, upsides and downsides. To yeah, it. there's yeah. pros and cons to that. As someone who like, you know, had a desk in an office that was my desk for, you know, knocking on ten years that I was used to and sort of you would have it anyway that you wanted and if someone had sat in your chair and adjusted anything you would be like, Oh, Who's been in my... Yeah. <laughs> they ruined all my stuff. <laughs> to sort of like now where you, you, you just like, you're used to a desk, but you have to book it every day. And sometimes someone sat in your desk and you're kind of like, they didn't book it. I booked this for today. And you get funny about it in a different way. But you do have less attachment because you're kind of like, well, I'm only going to be here for so long and so many hours. It is weird. D desk politics is strange. <laughs> it is weird because... Like, are you gonna leave your like your mark on the desk, or do you have to like take it home with you? You know, like, can you leave like a picture of your, your you know your your family or something on the desk or whatever? Like, yeah, should it look like no one's ever been yeah. here? Make sure there are no traces yeah. of you when you go. Yeah, yeah, uh, it has definitely kind of changed uh, this kind of work ethic, you no, know, or not work ethic, but workspace ethic. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to go into... We don't have any more to say on that at the moment, do we? I think we're... No, we're uh, I feel like I'll kind of just... I feel like I'm just waffling on. So <laughs> I'm not sure how... I'm not sure how you're going <laughs> to cut all this into something coherent. It's fine. This is the beauty of podcasts. We can just talk absolute nonsense if we want. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go into the change question. This is my backdoor way of asking, like, you know, what are the bad things about the job? Um... Because that's a really negative question and nobody wants to answer that. So instead, what I do is ask if you could change any three things about your work. So you can be fantastic or very pragmatic. It can be three. It can be one. Um, but yeah, if you could change any three things about your work right now, what would they be? Uh, I think I would just really like it that there isn't this like need to keep writing grant applications. Mm because it's exhausting uh, and like there's so many grant applications written and then like you know it, because it's so competitive a lot of them do not you know, actually get the funding so it's like mm. a lot of kind of wasted time of a lot of people uh, and it's also just like really stressful and a lot of work having to just keep writing grants and can you get an AI to do it can you just <laughs> and then just check it. Yeah, I have not tried <laughs> using AI for like writing something, but I'm sure like it will be. You know, there will be people who use it for writing things. Or I mean, it's going to be read by a computer first, isn't it? So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's not a very like that's yeah, that's very much the lazy way of doing it, and you're not. I think it's probably like if you put your own ideas and then just get the AI to maybe like. You know, especially if English is not your first language, then maybe like get mm. it to kind of write it in a nicer way than you would write it yourself. Mm. Yeah, maybe that's okay, but I don't know. I have not, I have not tried it. <laughs> it's a bit. It just feels like something else I would have to learn. You know, this kind of AI. <laughs> I already like have to keep learning new things online or on the computer. 
So I'm not in a rush to try that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think that's just one thing. Like reduce the need for like writing grant applications and compete for grants. Um, mm. What else? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the hours, so four day week potentially. Yeah, but that's just I think that is my like specific situation that's like I would just kind of like working I, I'm sure a lot of people would actually just like working for hours um, mm. and and it's like what you mentioned before like I don't really mind like working intensely for a period of time and then mm. maybe you know you can have a few weeks when you slow down a bit that is mm. fine I think there is like a lot of this uh, it's kind of linked to this what you said about AI mm. that we end up having to use like a lot of online you know, online kind of interfaces and kind of these new mm. programs and new procedures that we have to kind of keep learning. And mm. uh, I do find it a bit exhausting having to kind of adapt to new online systems that we have to use as like, like a admin sort of side of the job. Um, and one more thing. I think that's probably linked to like the universal basic income and uh, it's not specifically like about my job, but I think uh, in terms of like higher education, the way it works in the UK, that mm. it relies on student fees. I think it does impact of the, then it does impact on the work, uh, mm. you know, because you do have to kind of try to attract students. You have to try to get the grants to get funding. Um, and it's just kind of the relationship between kind of students and lecturers is different. If like students mm. just have to pay for their education, uh, it's kind of very... It becomes more of a consumer product, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So that is kind of not specifically about the work, but it does kind of impact the conditions of work, I think, if that makes sense. I mean, do you find... I mean, obviously your role is kind of paperwork anyway, but do you find that you've got to do you know, a lot of kind of box ticking and form filling, which has always been a part of work, but like, does it feel that you have to do more than your fair share of that to be doing the actual work that, that you're supposed to be doing? Sometimes. And I'm not yeah. even like, uh, I'm not the project lead, so I'm not even like responsible for like a lot of the, a yeah. lot of this paperwork. But yeah, there is a lot of, a lot of this, like, yeah, there is a lot of kind of forms and box ticking that you have to do for various aspects of academic work that uh, I don't think are really that necessary. Creates jobs for people though, doesn't it? <laughs> people moving bits of paper around. I think that's like, a, I think that's the case for a lot of jobs. You know, there is like a, mm. a lot of box ticking exercise for in a, in a lot of work that mm. is not always that necessary. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that that's the end of my questions. I think that's kind of a good a good place to, to sort of end. Um, so this is the point where I throw it over to you. Um, if there's anything that we haven't touched on or anything that you want to revisit or anything that you want to say at this point, this is a space for you to do it. But before I do that, I will ask you um, about socials. So where do people find out about you and your work if they want to sort of find out more? Probably just on 
Twitter or X, uh, though I am sort of considering moving away from that. But yeah, I think that's probably the best thing because I only use Facebook for like personal stuff. Mm-hmm. And I am on LinkedIn, maybe LinkedIn, mm-hmm. but I don't really, I'm not very active on it. Uh, yeah. no, I don't know if you use LinkedIn anyway for this. I, I sort of use it a bit more. I think it's like, I think it's come into its own a bit more in, in recent years, especially through lockdown. Um, so yeah, it is useful and maybe like, I don't know how much academics use it. Like I know a lot of people will use it for sort of other roles, but you know, is it kind of a thing in academia where would you, do you know people who've got jobs via LinkedIn? Um, no, but I do know like, but yeah, I don't really use it that much, but I do like know people do post about, uh, academic work yeah i don't know it can be quite good it can be quite good yeah um, yeah I, I don't know i am gonna i'm attending some social media training next week so maybe i'll maybe i'll use it a bit more i think twitter's probably the best or yeah x for us like yeah but also no now because you kind of like Oh yeah, this used to do that thing, and now you're like, I don't know what this does anymore. <laughs> yeah, it has become really bad. But um, I'm not on any of the other platforms like Mastodon or I don't know what else is yeah. there now. Um, so I will either move away from social media or uh, maybe go on Mastodon. But it seems a bit. Uh, it works in a different way now than Twitter, mm-hmm. and I, I did really like Twitter, like couple of years ago when it was like good for networking and kind of what well, I mentioned before kind of mm-hmm. finding out about new publications and you know new mm-hmm. kind of research that people were doing it was good for that mm-hmm. but now it's I don't know if the algorithm for specifically me has sort of meant that it's kind of rubbish now or if people have left and stopped mm-hmm. using it that much Thank you again to Marquetta for being my guest. Thanks, as always, to all my guests, and thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. If you are in Leeds or from Leeds, if you are Leeds, then please come on the show. Yes, I'm speaking to you. I still need to find 890 loiners to interview, so being a guest is the greatest help. You'll enjoy it. Remember to like, share, follow, and subscribe to Working Hours, and please consider supporting Working Hours financially with either a regular or a one-off donation of any amount. You can email workinghours at workinghourspod at western-studios.com. Okay, that's me. Work for peace and plan with kindness. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, Leeds. Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Follow Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore leads and on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. Western Studios Leeds will help you realise your podcast for only £25 for an hour of podcast work. Need podcast production, recording, editing, or any podcast admin doing? Need it all doing? Do you want or need a podcast host or co-host for your podcast project? 
then get in touch with Western Studios Leeds Limited. Email makemypodcast at western-studios.com to get your podcast made. I am available to third sector organisations, small to medium sized businesses and individuals who want to make podcasts or create other digital audio content. Want to make some fundraising case studies? Want to show off your expertise in your field? Want some help creating your show and format or just some support learning to podcast and getting going? Whatever your podcast needs, get in touch with Western Studios Leads. Go to western-studios.com and use the contact page to drop me a message about either working hours or about your own podcast project.